Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be able to serve you this morning with the proclamation of the word. I bring greetings to you from Reformed Church Southern Suburbs in Cape Town, South Africa. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing upon both the reading and the preaching of his word. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it is a joy, it is a delight, it is also a a weighty responsibility to come attentively to your throne of grace and receive the gift of Christ crucified and all his benefits through the ministry of the word. We come with burdens, we come with cares, anxieties from another week, and we struggle to focus, we struggle to bring our attention to that which is most important in our lives. So help us in our weakness, enable us to truly receive your bounty that you have prepared for us this morning, and you meet with us in our unique stage of life, and we believe, because your word teaches us, that you will act for our good and our comfort, you will convince and convert sinners, you will build up your saints in holiness and comfort, and you will do all of that for the glorification of your name. So please illumine our hearts now, in Christ's name, amen. So the reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So we're in the middle of Ecclesiastes. So I've been preaching through this very important part of the Old Testament. So we're in chapter 6. So the reading and the sermon text will be the entire chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, 
And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will come or what will be after him under the sun? Thus far, the reading of God's word may add his blessing to it. Well, if you haven't had your coffee this morning, this is, this is certainly uh, jarring enough to wake you up. I would think so if you've been listening. This is a portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, that would fall into uh, the wisdom literature alongside of the likes of Proverbs and Job, Song of Solomon. Uh, well, the wisdom literature is essentially the the knowledge that God imparts to us through his word to enable us to live well and to die well. And so this is one slice of wisdom. I want to emphasize right up front that it's very important not to to listen and walk away thinking that Ecclesiastes is the only angle or slice of wisdom that we are to appropriate and to live out as believers. Now, there are multiple layers, multiple slices, and I'm going to end the sermon this morning with the wisdom of Christ crucified, which is of utmost and central importance to us as believers. But it's, it, it's vital that we understand what it is to toil under the sun, to experience a vanity like our neighbor does, who doesn't necessarily believe in Christ. And so essentially what I would like to impart to you this morning from the word of God is further wisdom uh, to live out your baptism. Invocation, Monday through Saturday. All of us have callings, all of us have vocations, uh, including you children that are sitting here this morning. And so what does it mean to to live out your crucifixion in Christ, your participation in his death every moment of your lives by faith, in the mundane as well as the more dramatic. And so I have four points for you. I hope that's okay. Uh, I hope I'm not going to get into trouble. This is an off-kilter part of the Bible anyway, so maybe use the three points. He has four for you. The first one is uh, the vanity of faithfulness or I should say fruitfulness. The second is the vanity of multiplying. The third is the vanity of dominion. And my final point to wrap it all up is the vanity of vocation. Well, maybe uh, this is already uh, ringing bells in your head that this sounds like Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God gave Adam and Eve the cultural mandate. He gave them the commands to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. This was their task in the Temple of Eden. They were were through their obedience to receive and inherit a kingdom uh, beyond their wildest imaginations. And they were to do so by building a city. We know how badly that ended, but God didn't consign Adam and Eve to judgments. Right there east of Eden, he gave them them hope. He gave them cruciform hope, but he also continued the cultural mandate. And so in Genesis 8 and 9, we have something of a republication of that cultural mandate. 
uh, the calling to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion, but now with the additional clause of uh, basically the, the state or civil government as we know it today, Romans chapter 13, because of the reality of sin. And it is that reality of sin that brings the really jarring book of Ecclesiastes to light. Because I think what we have in our passage is, is the, the sort of anti-cultural mandate, the, the overturning of what all of us are about in this life on one level. I mean, we have to make a living. Uh, we, have to, we, we bear children if we are able to. And we exercise dominion. We make uh, cities and we govern and we... Uh, build nations, etc. And so in verses 1 and 2, you have the vanity of fruitfulness insofar as uh, here the preacher uh, reminds us of, of, of the fact that there is this, this evil under the sun. You know, under the sun basically being shorthand for, for life in this age, this present evil age. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. You could say this is, you know, this is the ideal if you're reading the book of Proverbs. You know, you're going to go about your vocations. You're going to be like the ants and be industrious. You're going to avoid uh, the, the burning colds of the wayward woman and you're going to raise your, your children in the fear and admonition of God. And you know, you're going to accrue wealth and possessions and honor. But the, you know, like the bone that gets caught in your gullet when you're enjoying a good meal, yet there, in God's providence, God does not give this individual the power to enjoy the fruits of his labor, but instead a stranger does. And perhaps you've, you've experienced that in your life. You've gone into business with someone else, or you know someone who has started off well only to be defrauded. Uh, by the other, by the stranger. And this is something of an echo of the experience of Old Testament Israel as they, they enjoyed the, the fruits, uh, the, 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 the land flowing with milk and honey, only to find themselves uh, under the power and the iron fist of pagan nations. And so so this, is, this is vanity, uh, the preacher exclaims. This is a grievous, Ill, uh, a grievous evil. It is like a sickness and a disease. And I think we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we experience something of this, this vanity. You know, vanity is a multifaceted word in Ecclesiastes. It can mean, on, uh, on the one hand, uh, it's mis- mysterious. It, it also means that we as human beings, all having fallen in Adam, experience limits, limits in our jobs, limits in terms of our fruitfulness. We may have a lot of potential at our disposal and yet find that not only are we limited in our enjoyment of these things, but they can be taken from us and it can seem absurd. Another layer to this concept, this idea of vanity, and we'll see it, as we move through the passage, is that life brings death. 
there's an expiration date on everything. But because we're sinful, we defend against these truths, these, these realities that we come into contact with on a daily basis. And what I mean by defend is we, we push away into to our unconscious. We, we, we try to explain away, perhaps, the vanity of life. I want, to, I want to take you momentarily to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, we have an example of how uh, believers in, in this church and the ancient world defended against this sad lot of humanity. We're not sure, you know, I'm not assuming that all of these individuals were, were um, believers, but you have this this faction within the church that were wanting to recreate the experience of the Old Testament order. They were, they were hearkening back to uh, the, a fantasy of tenure in the promised land. Kind of a new, Can- a new Garden of Eden in the land of Canaan. And they were they're described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 this way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, they had a a selfish ambition insofar as they were trying to recreate this this kingdom of Canaan. And yet that was no longer at their disposal. You know, they were were insisting on circumcision, uh, which was sort of a part signifying the whole of the Old uh, Testament law. And, and this, is part, they were, this is part of, or an example of, a defense against the vanity of fruitfulness. Again, we have our own defenses, and we have our own fantasies. We have our own dreams. But if we go back to our baptism, we understand that, that the flesh, the fleshly desires that we have, have been brought Uh, to nothing have been put to death by our participation in the crucifixion of Christ. And so think think of the the description uh, that Paul will meditate with me, what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, describing uh, these uh, false teachers intermingled with, I think, true believers, but they were being led astray. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, while this is likely describing you know, a, a wayward faction within the church, the Judaizers, is this not descriptive of our own flesh? our own sinful nature, going after uh, the, the pleasures and, 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 and the titillations of this present evil age. And yet, having been baptized into Jesus Christ, we believe and confess that, that indeed these passions and lusts have come to an end and been brought to nothing. 
And so we move on to verses three through six, which is my second point, which is the vanity of multiplying. The other sort of uh, portion of the cultural mandate that is turned on its head here. Again, think about uh, many of you um, have children. Uh, there are a number of children sitting uh, in the pews this morning, which is fantastic. I mean, even you children, you have callings. You are to obey your parents, the fifth commandments. And uh, many of you, have, you're in school and you rub shoulders with your classmates and, and you know, you're, you're, you're learning things and you're growing. But notice, notice the jarring commentary here on what it means to be a parent, what it means to, to have many children, a full quiver, and then there's the, the theme of, 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 of being satiated, well, I should say, a lack of being satisfied and satiated with the fruits of one's loins now. So the fruits of one's hands in verses 1 and 2 uh, is declared to be vain. And so, uh, too, in a sense, is uh, the fruit of one's uh, loins. So to have many children, but this, this soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also uh, has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So even the parents that has many children is, going, is, su- is subject to decay and ultimate death. But what the preacher is saying here is in light of the vanity of existence under the sun, in a sense, it's better that one were never born. You come into this world as a stillborn, and I, I don't read these words, I don't, I don't preach them uh, with any sense of levity. This is, this is a terrible thing uh, to consider, especially if you've experienced it. So a stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he. So the preacher is saying it's, it's actually, in a sense, better that you not be born and subject to the toil and vexation of everyday life, to have just had some rest. This is, this is reminiscent of, sort of the loss of that sabbatical rest, that, that, that seventh-day participation in uh, the rest of God that Adam and Eve failed to attain to, and now... Uh, the Israelites are failing to, to enjoy for the long term in the land of Canaan. I mean, that's quite something to say that's better not to be born. I mean, Job, Job says it as well in Job 3, verse 16. And so how do we, I mean, we defend against uh, the pain and the sorrow and the vexation we experience when we multiply. When we have children and, and things do not work out like we would hope. So the wisdom of Proverbs can be turned on its head. You're doing all the right things. You are being faithful. But the cause and effect wisdom of Proverbs just doesn't work out. It just doesn't because of the reality of sin. Now this isn't consistently true. 
but Ecclesiastes, in a sense, validates our experience. Children can be born deformed. They can grow and become sick. They can die young. They can be incredibly difficult as you try to raise them. Marriages can fail. You can be in a loveless marriage. But again, we defend, we think that we can overcome this by fantasizing, by... uh, Think about the example in Philippians of these, these Judaizers who are sort of trying to get back into the womb of the land of Canaan because they just cannot endure the reality of everyday life. But we go back to our baptism, brothers and sisters and children. And we go back to our baptism where, yes, we uh, participate in the crucifixion of Christ you know, positionally, we have been declared uh, dead and raised in Jesus. But then on an every, everyday life basis, we take up our cross and our self-confidence and our, our, our utopian visions for family, community, and nation, they're nailed to the cross, In Philippians chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you know, Paul himself gives us a window into his own journey. In verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he lists off his record as the Pharisee of Pharisees. And, he, and then He says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He has Paul working out his baptism invocation. And you as mothers and fathers are to do the same. You as children are called to take up your cross. And so this leads me to my third point, verses 7 through 11 the vanity of dominion. Again, we go back to the cultural mandate, the third movement, if you will. And this is, this is you know, you can think about parents and you've got a, a mini kingdom in terms of your family and that fans out to community, fans out to state and national government. And certainly according to the wisdom of Proverbs, there is much to celebrate. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we can be grateful for the measure of, of enjoyment we derive from our family, community, country. But notice what uh, the preacher goes on uh, to describe, which is our one a slice or angle of our existence under the sun. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So this idea of the law of diminishing returns, if you know something of, of this, this economics, you know that, that ordinarily the more one desires, uh, the more one accrues in terms of wealth and, and possessions and good, the good things of life, the more you want. It's like you, you, your appetite is not satisfied. And that's why there is so much greed that, and there is so much idolatry out there because of this aspect of the human condition. 
so, so for what advantage is the wise man over the fool? And I think this is, this, this is I'm looking at verse 8. This is a commentary on, you could say, the man of Proverbs, the one who's, who's exercising wisdom in terms of, of the cause. You know, good behavior results in reward. Bad behavior results in, in uh, consequences, judgments by neighbor, by boss, etc., loss of reward, the preacher is saying, you know, this is, you forget about being that wise man because, you know, the fool, and sometimes the fool ends up taking your money and your house anyway. And they weren't, they didn't care about justice at all. I, I mean, we've seen that. We know that happens. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? It's sort of, it's better to, to be a poor, afflicted man than to have uh, many possessions. Better is the sight of the eyes, the poor man, than the wandering of the appetite. Again, so this, this, this declaration, once again, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So this, if you think about the reality of wind, I don't know how much wind you get here, but in Cape Town we get a lot of wind, and while you can't see wind, it leaves effects, right? It just tear down trees and it creates massive waves and yet you can't contain it, you can't master it and the truth set forth in God's word here is that you know, we are not able to master fruitfulness, multiplying and exercising dominion. So whatever has come to be has already been named. And, is, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one that is stronger than he. So there's this cycle of existence where people are born, they live a life, they are hopeful, they'll leave a legacy, a name to be remembered. But every legacy and every name with time is forgotten. And so as, as much as we might pridefully think we're special and that we're going to leave a mark, that just is not the case. But we, we defend against that. We would like to believe that's not the case. And so we indulge, again, in the flesh, in all kinds of defense mechanisms. Uh, we can be like the Judaizers here, dreaming about the golden age of tenure in the promised land. We can be uh, workaholics. We can grind so hard, you know, thinking if we just put in an extra hour, we, we will be able to have a legacy of dominion that is enduring, or maybe we'll just get over the precipice of, of not being enough, not having enough, not, not being powerful enough. I think the, in verse 11, uh, the description here of vanity is pro, pro, especially profound. I think, it, considering your political environment, if I can go there, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? I mean, how often when we are in a pickle we use, we just keep using words because we believe that we can bend someone's ear, we can bend the broader public, 
we can bend God's ear and think about Jesus' indictments of the Gentiles who think they're going to be heard for their many words. But this is, this is our, anxious, our anxious desire to be in control. I mean, we're outfitted by being made in the image of God for dominion. And so when we don't see that happening, we, we grasp. We grasp at straws. Then we come back to our baptism. Now, baptism uh, reminds us, it, it, it is, not only reminds us, it is something that we are to, to work out anew insofar as the, the corrupt flesh that we carry around that has these, these defenses and, and, and lusts and, and dreams, you know, sort of trying to recreate uh, something that is no longer available to us in this life under the sun, you know, that, is, that is put to death by faith. This idea of Lord's Day 33, the mortification of the flesh, the putting off the old, of the old man, and vivification, the putting on of the new. And I think this brings us to the climax of our passage, which, which is my fourth point, verse 12, the vanity of vocation, bringing it all together. But I want to stress again that don't mishear me. There is the wisdom and the, the enjoyment of the book of, book of Proverbs insofar as we do experience a measure of justice and order and a, a measure of, of, of fruitfulness. And we are to be grateful for that as tokens of God's love and goodness towards us. But Ecclesiastes is so important because it it really drives us out of ourselves. It, it breaks down our self-confidence and our selfish ambitions. It, it, it exposes the, the vain aspirations of the old man. Now, Ecclesiastes was, I think, in a sense, given to the Old Testament saints to, you know, it, was, it was like, it was part of that, 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 that schooling to drive them to look to coming Messiah alongside of the, the law and the Old Testament sacrificial system. So verse 12, who, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You know, so in, in Adam in terms of our sinful nature, we can't, we can't ascend to God through being fruitful, multiplying, and exercising dominion. And your vocations may be very impressive. I'm sure there are doctors and CEOs and incredibly accomplished individuals from a, a civil uh, perspective. And then there are those that that are more impressive to my mind, <laughs> who are raising, raising children and it's so seemingly uh, mundane at times and, 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 and very unrewarding and yet so incredibly important and, and satisfying at the same time. And yet none of these things are going to earn you passageway into the kingdom of Christ. 
Now think about the kingdom of Christ with me now as we close. And think about our Lord Jesus Christ, who seemed to be living a vain life, suffering, anticipating death, crucifixion, a cruel spectacle, passing like a seeming shadow. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what, what, what seemed at face value to be just another chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes, here Jesus Christ turns vanity into victory. Here Jesus Christ comes and he fulfills the cultural mandate in his person, in his flesh. Here Jesus Christ comes and, and, and he overcomes sin, death, and hell, injustice to give us confidence in the midst of our pain and toil and affliction this side of glory, that we will pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Christ shed his blood so that we might ha have hope and comfort in the midst of our cross-bearing. Now, you may not tell your, even your believing neighbor, brother or sister, what you're going through. But I suspect if you're not afflicted now, you will be. Otherwise, you're illegitimate children. Because every son and daughter of God is called to take up his or her cross. To work out baptism. For we participate in the passion of Jesus. Again, Definitively, so nothing can change that despite our doubt and unbelief and despite our sinful defenses and all of the above, whatever might come our way in this veil of tears. But we progress, as we're progressively sanctified, uh, we are to work out our baptism invocation, which means taking in large doses of humiliation. As mothers and fathers, as janitors, as accountants, CEOs, lawyers. I mean, this is the lot of the Christian. And I mean, the world will look and scoff and, and, and mock and deride. And yet, and we yet have this cruciform wisdom. The pattern of Jesus Christ is being worked out in our lives as well. I mean, we don't atone for our sins, and we cannot obey the law perfectly in order to justify ourselves. 
but out of gratitude we obey the law of God, we obey the law of Christ, knowing that in, in time our humiliation will give way to exaltation. For God has highly exalted him, that is our head, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so behind this, this veil of, 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 of seemingly vain existence, ecclesiastical experience of life that we all participate in, you know, God is, is working all things together for good. So the seeming vanity of fruitfulness, the vanity of multiplying, the vanity of dominion, the vanity of vocation. This has all been drawn up in God's good providence uh, to further our salvation. And God is, is, is producing spiritual children, sons and daughters adopted into the family of God through our loins. For the promises for us and for our children and those are, who are far off. And yet he does it through imperfect parents. He does it through an imperfect church. He does it through imperfect schooling. But God is pleased to work through weakness and brokenness. And so brothers and sisters and children, may you be of good courage this morning. You know, as you go out for another week as pilgrims and exiles on your way to the celestial city, may you know that though you experience vanity out there, it's not, it's not ultimately vanity. You are more than conquerors. You are victorious in Jesus Christ. We are more than overcomers. But we'll need to continue toiling and taking up our cross, but remember that the burden of Christ is light, his yoke is easy. Hide this word in your heart. Remember your baptism. Work it out. Come with anticipation to the supper where you will feast and you will be nourished to eternal life. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It is not an easy word. In our flesh, we prefer not to acknowledge the realities of the slice of existence and wisdom. And yet, Lord, have your way in us by your word and spirit. Shape us into more able Christians to navigate the highs and the lows, the pitfalls and the mountaintops of our sojourn in this life. Lord, we remember this time in, in the liturgical calendar as we, we will celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But help us to remember that, that we are caught up in the already not yet tension of Good Friday existence with tastes of glory. And this has indeed been a preview. It has been a real experience of the powers of the age to come. 
as we worship you in spirit and in truth even now. And so we pray particularly for those who are weighed down, burdened with anxieties and cares, depression, difficult family lives, difficult jobs, anxieties about this country and where it's headed. Lord, would you uphold and keep them? Would you be with those bruised reeds and smoking flaxes? May we all know that your strength is perfected in weakness. Help us to walk by faith. In Christ's name, amen.